0: Welcome to Truth Matters Church and our expository study through the Book of Revelation. Connect with us at truthmatterschurch.org. Today we continue looking at the letter to the church in Philadelphia found in Revelation Chapter 3 with Part 1 of an examination of Jesus' statement that He has the key of David. We're digging deep into the Old Testament to properly interpret this verse. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Kataroja.
1: And the title of our message is The Key of David. How many of us have heard of the Key of David phrase? Would it it surprise you that this Key of David was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament? Of course not. Well, what we're going to find is among the many declarations that Jesus made, one of them was that he has the Key of David. So for our study today, we're going to read the letter, we're going to look at that declaration of Jesus having or possessing the key of David, and we're going to find ourselves going right back to the Old Testament. And we're going to find what was behind this statement that our Lord made. With that, let's begin our scripture reading. We will read Revelation 3, verse 7 through 13. And I'll be reading from the NES. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at just verse 7. In fact, we're going to spend quite a bit on just the first part of verse 7. But let's go ahead and re-look at what John wrote there. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So as all of the other letters are opened, the, the first mention or the first person or first being addressed is to the angel or to the agalos. And I've argued time and time again, there was an angel assigned to each of these seven churches. And here, this has a dual audience in terms of this letter. It was written to the angel assigned over that church as well as to the believers who gather at that church. So Jesus first addresses the angel over Philadelphia, and this is what he declares, and this is a summing statement. He says, who is holy, who is true. So when we looked at the glorified Son of Man uh, vision in chapter one, when John was very descriptive of this glorified Son of Man, if you were to sum it up, he's really describing him as the one who is holy and who is true and Jesus here says, he who is holy is true, who has the key of David. The key is Kleiss, and we've covered that before. And klyse, it speaks of authority. And he has this key, or Kleis of David. And here's where we're going to spend quite a bit of time. What does this mean? He has the key of David. Let me ask us a question. How can we find out its meaning? Scripture. I know we joke about it, and you're like, you know, Alex, you're a broken record. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Well, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're using the Scripture to the extent we can to try to understand Scripture. And, you know, I think one telltale is, you know, if anyone before you is saying, hey, I, you know, I believe in the Bible, I believe in the authority of the Word of God, I te- you know, I, I believe in all 66 books of the Bible and so forth, but if they're not teaching you from the 66 books, then what are they giving you? Then you know, at the end, you're getting the opinion of man rather than hearing from the word of God. So we'll always look to scripture, and, and scripture is going to be our guide because especially if we want to try to understand this book that is very, very complicated at times. But I'm trying my best to take these in pieces to help us understand it. Now, the good thing is, when it comes to Scripture, and this is a practice that I would encourage all of us, if you want to study something, look at its other mentions in Scripture. So what I did was, I said, okay, when was Key and David used together? Let's start there. Because I want to understand, when Jesus says, he has the Key of David, what what, what did you mean by that, Lord? Just look at Key and David. Conveniently, it was only one other time in all of Scripture, apart from this letter to Philadelphia, that key and David were at least translated in our English together. So it was one. I was like, great, let's go there. And it was in Isaiah's prophecy. I said, like, okay. So for this, I'd like to read that prophecy in its entire chapter. So we're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 22. Now what I like about our, our studies, especially when we started our pre-work in studying the book of, uh, the book of Daniel... We spend quite a bit of time in the Old Testament. And I made this comment before. If we want to even have a chance of understanding the book of Revelation, we must have a solid grasp of the Old Testament. If we don't have a solid foundation in the Old, whatever you're teaching in Revelation, it's on sand. It's not on solid ground. So what we're trying to do is, okay, we're going to spend to the extent we can time in other parts of scripture especially in the old testament so that we have that foundation and then from there because the new testament is building off of that foundation because it's a progressive revelation of that foundation and we know that we it finds its fulfillment in the lord jesus christ so we were going to spend our time in the old testament when the scripture takes us there and the scripture takes us there because jesus made this statement that he has the key of david And this is a direct reference to Isaiah's prophecy. So let's go there. And I'd like for us to read all of chapter 22. And some of our headers might title this the Valley of Vision Oracle. But let's read, shall we? Isaiah 22. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with a sword. "'Nor did they die in battle. "'All your rulers have fled together "'and have been captured without the bow. "'All of you who were found were found taken captive together, "'though they had fled far away. "'Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. "'Let me weep bitterly. "'Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction "'of the daughter of my people. "'For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, "'subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision.' A breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. And you removed the defense of Judah. In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come to the steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here, and whom do you have here, that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock, behold, the Lord is about to hurl you, headlong, O oh man, and he's about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be. You shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and I will put you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him and I will trust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the lease of vessels from bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall and the load hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. This is Isaiah's prophecy. Now I'm not going to come here and tell you that I understand it all. When it comes to prophecy, that's probably the most difficult thing to even try to grasp. But what I'm going to try to do is, at least from the learning that we've acquired up to this point, is what can we pull, what can we glean from these prophecies that will give us insight behind Jesus making the statement as the one who has the key of David among other things because this pro- this this prophecy of Isaiah and just like the prophecies in the book of Revelation some of it is more immediate and then it goes way into the future it's no different in Isaiah's prophecy he goes you know kind of immediate to the way future even up to Christ and then what we're seeing is in these letters it goes immediate all the way to the future until Christ but there's a couple of things from the prophecy of Isaiah 22 that i want to bring to our attention so in context he is prophesying that judah is going to be taken into captivity as a pronouncement of judgment and also what is encompassed in this prophecy is the coming messiah during the end times because he says on his shoulder i will set the key of the house of david on his shoulder and we know that well who is that who who was isaiah prophesying about it was the lord jesus christ so a couple of things that I want to at least bring before us that this prophecy encompassed was Judah being taken into captivity and the coming Messiah during the end times. And there's a few things that I do want to at least note and call out from this prophecy that will help, help us understand end times prophecy. And that's the mention of housetops. That's one. I want to talk about that a little bit. He mentions housetops in this prophecy. He also mentions being captured without the bow. What can we glean from that? compared to also now the New Testament teachings. And also lastly, the key of the house of David. So I want, to let, I want us to look at these three things in Isaiah's prophecy to help us ultimately understand the claim and declaration that Jesus made that he has the key of David. First, I want to talk about mention of housetops. So I want to go back to Isaiah 22, verse one, the very first verse of this prophecy. The oracle concerning the valley of vision What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? My question to us, who's you in this prophecy? Judah, very specifically. What's the matter with you now? And he's talking to those in Judah, that you have all gone up on the housetops. So the you in this prophecy, at least more immediately, are the people of Judah. And with us not being there, he was prophesying that they're going to be on housetops. Okay? Okay. The next question is okay this is judah and housetops i saw your eyes kind of go is there any other mention of judah and housetops or roof together matthew 24 and that's where we're going we're going to go to matthew 24 a lot because this is the crux right this is where our lord jesus himself gave us this great magnificent of a prophecy and it spanned from, the, you know, from him to the destruction of Jerusalem 70 AD, even until the end of the age. But there was also another mention of Judah and housetops. And I want us to read it once again in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. And we'll read verses 15 through 22. Therefore, our Lord says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea, Judah, must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In our Lord's prophecy, he's prophesying sometime after the abomination of desolation, those in Judah are to flee to the mountains, and whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Now, how many of you are guilty of this? And I, I was. I remember, you know, not having any guiding principles on how to study Scripture. When I would read this, oh, wow, like if I'm on the housetop, okay, there's great tribulation. There's going to be something going on. And if I'm on the housetop, I'm just instructed not to go into the house to get it. I thought like that. Did you, you probably thought like that, too. But who's you in the prophecy? Judah, Judea. Unless you're in Judea, this doesn't apply to you. So right there, right off the bat it already narrows the scope, doesn't it, quite a bit. But when you take both Isaiah's and Jesus' prophecy together, the housetop reference are in connection with the takeover of Jerusalem and Judah. So when Isaiah was prophesying, he was pronouncing their ultimate captivity, Babylonian captivity. But also within this prophecy, he's looking beyond. But what we can learn from Isaiah's prophecy and our Lord's prophecy is just like Judah was taken into captivity, Babylonian captivity, our Lord is saying they're going to be captive again. And that's why those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are on the housetops in Judea must not go down to get his things. And we weren't there when Babylon conquered Judah and took them captive and that's where that's where the whole Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego when they got taken as part of the waves of that captivity but when they were by you know taken over by then King Nebuchadnezzar but through this prophecy when they were being taken over they were on housetops and Isaiah was saying why are you all on housetops and it was because the Lord pronounced judgment on them and now we have our Lord saying to them again if you're on housetops don't go down so they're being taken over are we getting that so there's a prophetic truth there is a parallel between judah's babylonian captivity and their captivity during the end times we got to get that some in judea were on housetops when they were taken over by babylon during the end times some judeans will find themselves on housetops too and this brings another prophetic truth the abomination of desolation will involve the temple jerusalem the people of Israel in the land of Judah. And that's why we studied the, tribu- the different tribulations in Scripture. And we're talking about Jerusalem's tribulation or the day of Jacob's trouble, what was also called in the Old Testament. Here's where it does get a little complicated when we study end times. I want to go back to Matthew uh, 24, verse 21. He goes, For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. What's behind that statement? Is the great tribulation just the abomination of desolation and just the destruction of Jerusalem? I would argue no. He's saying after the abomination of desolation and after the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah taken over, then there will be great tribulation that will also follow. So here's where it gets a little, con- a little confusing when you study end times. Remember I mentioned this before, the different tribulations? There's a church tribulation. There's the tribulation, Jerusalem's tribulation. And then there's global tribulation. There's these different tribulations for different groups. But sadly, when it comes to the study of end times, those three are mucked up. So like when it says, for then there will be great tribulation, they'll say, oh, okay, so this is the global tribulation, what is often kind of understood by others. But it well, there will be global tribulation. So this statement, he says, for then there will be great tribulation. It starts with the abomination of desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem, or the takeover of Jerusalem, and the land, and this kind of captivity. That's a tribulation. That's Jerusalem's tribulation. But he says, for then there will be great tribulation. I believe that our Lord is also prophesying of the global calamities that are about to come. But unfortunately... That distinction is not called out very often. So from here now, what I'd like to do is look at a a second part of this prophecy. We're going through this to understand because this prophecy ultimately leads to the prophecy that this Messiah will be given the key or the house of David on his shoulders. So we're kind of getting through this prophecy to get to that point which is the title of our message but there were just these few things that i want to kind of draw out because we're just trying to understand the end times prophecy we're doing this is an end time study now, i want to look at isaiah's prophecy when he mentioned them being captured without the bow i want to pick it up now the next two verses isaiah 22 2 and 3 he goes you who are full of noise you boisterous town you exultant city Your slain were not slain with a sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. So apparently, wherever the leaders of Judah was at that time, when they were taken captive, they were nowhere to be found in this prophecy. Uh, But I do want to call out that it says, All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. Now, bow in the Hebrew is kasheth, and it's mentioned 75 times in the Old Testament. Now, when you look at bow or kasheth, it can mean different things depending on its context. So bow, as it's translated in English, or kasheth, it could mean, it could refer to hunting, whether you're actually hunting with an actual bow and arrow. You're actually hunt, you know, hunting with your kasheth and an arrow. It can refer to the bowmen or the archers who are actually the ones who are firing those arrows. Kasheth can also be figurative to speak of might, bow, might. Uh, rainbow, the bow, the Kasheth is also the bow. Kasheth can also mean war. It could also mean weapon of war, like what is used. So a bow or a sword can be used as a weapon. And lastly, and this is not all-encompassing as I went through... Pretty much the 75 mentions. Here are some ideas of what bow means. It can also mean, depending on its context, an impending attack. So when you see when the Lord is bending a bow to his enemies, imagine an archer who is stretching out his bow to fire. Could you imagine being on the other end and God is the one who is bending a bow against you? Well, that means there's an impending attack. Or in the case of God, there can be an impending judgment in isaiah's prophecy judah's rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow so i want to ask us here which of the above meaning of bow makes sense in isaiah's prophecy judah's rulers they have fled together and have been captured without the bow is it referring to hunting is it referring to bowmen or archers is it figurative of might rainbow war weapon of war or impending attack what do you think War that they've been captured without war, without weapon of war, or without a bow or sword, or without an impending attack, without weapons. I would agree. Now, if you say, well, they got caught without the bowmen or the archers. Yeah, I would agree with that too. I want us to kind of now look at this. We were looking at this from the Old Testament. And we know that bow or kesheth, it can mean different things depending on its context. When it comes to the Old Testament, there's over 75 of them. And as we just talked about, there could be more than one plausible choice. Now, if we go to the New Testament, if you were to go, okay, what's the Greek equivalent for kesheth in the Hebrew? And it is tokson. So if you were to go, okay, kesheth in the Hebrew, it's mentioned over 75 times, and it's a little gets a little more difficult to try to, Figure out exactly you know, which bow interpretation is correct. But if you go, okay, what's that equivalent of kesheth in the Greek, which is the New Testament? It's toxon. Toxon in Greek is bow for shooting arrows. And here I try to take a snip here from the Old Testament Hebrew lexical dictionary, but here's the kesheth, the Greek equivalent would be toxon. And there's a strong number there. Here's where, and we talked about this a little bit kind of in passing. So toxon, or bow, is only mentioned once in the entire New Testament. And if you were to follow kind of the etymology of that word, and let's say we were to go to the Oxford Dictionary, how many of us have heard of toxic? The word toxic, hey, that's toxic. We're saying that's poisonous. Well, if you were to say, okay, where did toxic come from? It came from the Latin word toxicus, which means poisoned. If you saying that's toxic or something's toxic, it's poisonous. And the Latin word itself actually came from the Greek word toxon. So you're like, okay, toxicus in the Latin, where did you get tox? So how did you make, get to that word? Well, it came from the Greek term toxon, meaning bow. And here's what we can learn from toxon. In ancient Greece, fighters with bows they would put poison on the points of their arrow so now because toxin is only used once in the entire new testament we're going to look at it and it happens to be in the book of revelation and with that i'd like us to go to the breaking of the first seal in revelation 6 verses 1 and 2 Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, had a toxin, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. I don't know if any of you have maybe looked at some commentaries behind this. I've read somewhere... That someone said, oh, this rider on the white horse, and he had a bow. You know what one commentary said? Because he didn't have arrows, he just a bow, he came in peace. So this is world peace. This is prophecy of a world leader coming to promote world peace. Of course, my question is, okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, first of all, we looked at the 75 mentions of the equivalent toxon in the Hebrew. When was it ever peace? It was never peace. It was literally hunting, or you're a bowman, or it was a weapon of war, or you're waging war. Something along those lines, never. And bow and arrow isn't always mentioned. It's just bow. It's assumed that you, your bow, if that's your weapon, you, you can, yeah, you can fight with it, but it's more for shooting arrows. It was their guns back then, pretty much. So just because arrow wasn't mentioned doesn't mean that this figure came in peace. Now, I'm not going to tell you I know who this rider on the white horse is, but I think as we're progressing in our study and we're looking at Daniel's prophecy, it's kind of narrowing the scope. So with that, what I'd like to do is, I want to present before us, in the rider of the white horse, and this is the breaking of the first seal because toxin and crown this rider on a white horse was given a crown was given a stephanus which means you know it's a literal crown or it can even be a wreath a little conjecture here you know what the caesars wear a wreath it was also a crown and it's someone who was given or was crowned you know whether a king or someone with authority but in this rider on the white horse that when the first seal was broken, came with a bow, a toxin. He was given a crown or a wreath. And it says, conquering and to conquer is the context. So with that, the bow or toxin is to be understood as war, including a weapon of war that is potentially poisonous. So what I'm saying is this. The prophecy of the rider on the white horse who came with the bow... And who was given a crown? He was one that was given great authority, and he's waging war, and he could potentially use poisonous toxins. Now, because we're, we're sticking to our guiding principles, as long as if it comes from the end of a tip of an arrow of some sort, then I'm like, that's more of the prophecy of what it's talking about. So if you go, oh, it's a nuclear warhead, I'm like, yeah. I, I get that kind of jump or leap, but toxin or bow was never used of a nuclear warhead. So I'm not going to go that far. But whoever was this rider on the white horse, he was a ruler given great authority, and he wages war and potentially through the use of poisonous toxins as one through the end of an arrow. So here's a prophetic key where I'm kind of getting with, with, that all, with all this. If we were to take Isaiah's prophecy and Jesus' Olivet Discourse, here's where we land. When will the first seal be broken? You've heard, you know, you can read commentaries and say, well, the first seal's already been broken, and you can say, well, look at history from the first century forward. Here's the breaking of the first seal, and you can even throw, like, the Catholic Church in there, and the, the papacy, and, you know, the, the Reformation. You, you can kind of get all of these different things. Well, if I take Isaiah's prophecy. And I take Jesus all of a discourse that places it at the abomination of desolation. I'm connecting the first seal will be in connection with the abomination of desolation. So if you ask me, Alex, do you think the first seal has been broken? No. Because Isaiah's prophecy, which parallels Jesus' prophecy, and the parallel is Judah being taken captive and Judah being on housetops. And it happens, and Jesus says, Therefore, after you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, That's leading me that this rider on the white horse will appear when the abomination of desolation occurs in the Middle East. So someone in the Middle East is going to rise to power, be given a crown, is going to wage war. Could it be a holy war? Absolutely. Conquering and being conquered. And it'll result in the abomination of desolation and then the rest of the prophecy will follow. So if you are to ask me, I don't think that first seal has been broken yet in looking at Isaiah 22 and Matthew 24. So you could take that for what it is, but for now that's where I believe the scripture, the scripture is taking us. I think for us, the church, the believers in Jesus Christ, we want to pay attention to the Middle East specifically. What's going on in Jerusalem? What's going on in the land of Israel? Judah. What's going on there? Because then once the temple is built... And then once the sacrifices begin, the time is going to come and there will be a covenant. And we, co- we studied this when we studied Daniel of Israel and the neighboring nations into this holy covenant. So if you're kind of putting it together, there's going to likely be a covenant made between those Middle Eastern nations that for a time is going to permit Israel to rebuild the temple and reinstitute the animal sacrifices. And if for those of us in the body of Christ, we're like, if when that happens, Jesus' return is even nearer than it was before, because the Scripture is telling us what's going to happen after that, which is ultimately going to be their abomination of desolation, and then there will be great tribulation that we're going to discover or learn through our study that's going to happen to the world also at that point in time. Do you guys remember this comment I made? Uh, and it, this was kind of a summing comment. And I said this from the beginning: we're to view prophecies, including end times prophecies, with the land and people of Israel as the focal point. If we do that, the land of Israel, Jerusalem, that's the focal point of prophecy. Could it be in Antarctica? Can a rider and a white horse be in Antarctica or on the South Pole? North Pole. I, is a rider and a white horse going to come in those two places? See, for those of us that sound silly, you're like, no. But then, then why are you going to make it happen here in the United States? Then why are you asking, well, is the United States or, 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 you know, when this abomination of desolation happens, is it going to affect you know us here in the United States? At least not yet immediately. No. Where? This, the central of prophecy is the abomination of desolation. That's why he says those in, who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are on the housetops must not go down to get his cloak. What I envision is when they get surrounded by these, whoever is taking them over through this war, the people of Jerusalem are going to flee on their housetops. And they're now getting ravaged. And Jesus is saying, for those of us who are there at that time, don't go down to get your things. It's not going to be good. And he goes, woe to those who are women who are pregnant and nursing babies. And he's talking about the people there at that time. So when we think about, I know that we're like, wait a minute. So for us, we're like, wait. When we hear great tribulation, are we going to go through it, or so on and so forth? Then we're like, we're we're, saying, we're taking this pregnant kind of mention. You know, woe to those who are pregnant. You might put yourself in there right now. It's 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 not. It hasn't gone past Jerusalem yet. But then there will be great tribulation, and as we follow in our study of Revelation, will it ultimately extend to the church and to Christianity? Yeah because that's the rest of her children. And that's where we're like, okay, where does this now, where does the church intersect with this? And that's what we're going to continue to try to unpack. I know that this was a lot, and a lot of this probably went over our heads, I I get it, especially when it comes to Old Testament. But this is the Word of God. You know when when Jesus said, man shall live by every word but by just the four Gospels. No, he says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What happens in a lot of New Testament churches, is you just stick in the New Testament in certain books, in the Gospels, and that's it. But Jesus said, no, we, the whole council, you got to teach it all. So when the Scripture takes us, I'm taking us to the Old Testament, and it's, it's heavy. I'm like, huh, Isaiah? And, and these prophetic writings... I can say that because we've been doing what we're doing, I'm starting to get a hang of it a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm kind of I'm connected okay, I caught that, I caught that, I connected it. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to Isaiah said the same thing, Jesus said the same thing, boom. And now when we get to the seals, I'm like, yep, boom. I think this is where it's all coming together to a head. So just stay with it. But hopefully you're starting to see I think God is very detail oriented. He he when he planned things, he really planned it to the T. And he even considered all of human history, and the human, and the wills of angels and of people, and he took it all into consideration. Gonna, he made his plan, and he's going to execute it perfectly. So here is Isaiah, what 700 BC, and then you have the Lord Jesus that came, what 700 years after him, around there, and they're both prophesying the same thing. And in Daniel, you know, shortly thereafter, Isaiah was also prophesying of the abomination. You have the holy prophets looking to Messiah and beyond. Messiah comes. He's like, now you're looking at me, and he's also looking beyond to his next coming. So we're, we're trying to understand how, how this all unfolds. But Revelation is going to start to you know, unpack in that way. So I think when we get to the prophecy of the first seal, then we're like, it's going to pick up pretty quickly. So a lot of revelation is, is prophecy still, if you ask me. A lot of it is still prophecy. And then there will be a lot of telltale signs. Okay, this is, we're, on the, we're on this seal because this happened. We're on this trumpet because this happened. And then ultimately, we're, when we're in the seventh trumpet, and ultimately when we get raptured, we know that the bulls would follow, but we're not going to be here when the bulls are poured out on the earth. So then it starts to you just you kind of let it flow in that way. And hopefully um, as we continue on, I'll try to give us some like graphs and kind of seeing, well, here's what we've been learning. And I will try to put it in the timeline in a way and say, okay, here's kind of how things will unpack. And here are some
0: key markers to know how soon is really the return of our, of our Lord. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. Join us next time for part two of our look at the Key of David. And if you've missed any part of our study, you can find them archived at truthmatterschurch.org or simply search for us on Sermon Audio. And consider joining us for our study in person or via Zoom every Friday night. You can find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.